It's December. I don't know how that happened because I'm pretty sure two weeks ago it was August. But it's December, and we are excited. We always want to be celebrating the Lord Jesus Christ, but I know that this season is especially special um, as we get to come into a place of reflection on how Jesus came, that Jesus came differently and better than anybody could have hoped or imagined. And so we want to glorify him um, this morning and in this season. I want to draw your attention to a few things happening in the life of the church that you have an opportunity to plug into. Faith Women and Friends, tomorrow evening is Come Let Us Adore Him. We'll be gathering here. Um, for those of you that registered, uh, as well as if you forgot to register, there is still space for you, so we would love to have you come. We'll be gathering here in the Fellowship Hall for um, a unique time of worship and adoring our Savior Um if you would rem uh, remember to bring an appetizer to share, that would be great. But it will be a, a worshipful evening um, focused on Jesus. So we would love to have you here tomorrow at 7 p.m. Also, this Wednesday, Faith Youth, our youth, our 6th through 12th graders will be having their Christmas party over in the Fellowship Hall from 6.30 to 8 p.m. We would love for you to come. If you are 6th through 12th grade, come on out. The only thing you need to bring is a wrapped ornament. It could be a used ornament. It could be a new ornament. Just bring one wrapped ornament for a fun game you guys will be doing. Um, but come on out to that youth Christmas party and bring a friend. It's a great time to plug in. And then the following Wednesday, not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday, is the Faith Kids Christmas Party, also in the Fellowship Hall, from 6.30 to 8 p.m. Both of these things are free. Um, we just asked for the youth, excuse me, for the Faith Kids Christmas Party. If you would just go online and register at faithstatesville.org, just so they, we know how many kids to prepare um, crafts and games and food and all of that good stuff for, if you would register your kids online. This is a great chance to bring neighbors or friends kids friends um, to plug into life in Christ so we invite you to both of those things also want to let you know on the connect wall we've got a flyer that lines out all of these events um, over this month with the dates and times and locations and all of that so you can grab that if you forget but I will tell you that we have our Christmas Eve Eve service. Some friends of ours call it Christmas Adam because, you know, Christmas Eve, Christmas. Okay. So Christmas Eve, Eve service on December 23rd. We're going to be gathering here in the fellowship hall at 7 p.m. Um, just as a time to reflect as the body of Christ on what the birth of our Savior means. So we would love to have you here for that time of worship. And then Christmas Eve morning, December 24th, just it's a Sunday. So we'll be gathering here as usual, at 10 a.m. to glorify Jesus um, as, we, as we think forward to his birth. All right. I think that's it by way of announcement. So if you would stand with me, we'll ready our hearts this morning to receive the word and worship our Lord. God, I thank you for bringing us here this morning. I thank you for giving us this time and this place and this space, Lord, to seek you and to find you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, I ask especially this morning that you would tighten our grip on your word. Let us hold fast to the word of God. Lord, let us find new treasures, Father, in your word this morning. Let us find new layers of your goodness and your holiness 
and your love, Father, the love that you love the world with, so much so that you sent your son Jesus to bring us back to you, God. So, Father, fill our hearts, fill our minds, Holy Spirit, with your presence, and let us adore you with the worship you deserve. Be exalted in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Stay standing. We're doing things a little differently this morning. So I hope you've already memorized your 50 weeks in the Word. If you haven't, well, it's sneaking up on you, all right? Uh, This week we were in Psalm 51. Uh, If you know the old song, you'll have this one memorized, no problem. So uh, let's say it together. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Psalm 51.10. You may have a seat. Just a couple things on uh, in announcements. Um, the women are meeting here in the worship center and not the fellowship hall. And our Christmas Eve Eve service is here in the worship center and not the fellowship hall. Um, so just to clarify those two points. Um, and uh, I'm going to need um, a few men to stay after and uh, help clear out the sanctuary for the women's event. It's not going to be like we've done in the past where we're taking out all the rows and bringing in a whole bunch of tables. I just need like four or five guys. We're just going to clear out a few rows um, under the direction of the women. So if any of you men can stay after, um, please uh, come up here. And Christy Huff and Amber Prevett will um, order you around, which Tim and Luke are very used to, I'm sure. Um, So... We are in our final week of Habakkuk, and uh, it will become more apparent as we go why we're leaving worship until the end. You see, uh, Habakkuk chapter 3, where we are this morning, it's a song. And then there's, there's this strange word in the beginning, uh, in Habakkuk 3 verse 1, and it's Shigayanoth. And I don't even know if I pronounced it right, but that's the word that's there, and the reality is, is that nobody really knows what this word means. It's a word that we don't really have the interpretation. But the best that they can come up with is like this inner urge, this inner longing and desire. It's like from the guts coming out. And so when Habakkuk, as we'll get into this, uh, this song, is singing, it comes from deep within. And so we're going to be uh, doing some worship uh, through music at the end. And just to recap, Habakkuk has some complaints in the beginning of the Bible, or in the beginning of the, of the book. Uh, he sees iniquity and destruction and violence, strife and contention, perverted justice. He just sees wickedness swallowing up the righteousness, and he's angry at what he sees. And he asks, he keeps asking God, God, why? Why are you allowing this? Why is this happening? And he is rightfully angry because God set down these laws and statutes for them. And they've been disregarding them for, for decades now, maybe even sent, and at some point throughout the centuries. And uh, God tells him, look, I'm going to bring judgment against Judah, but I'm going to use Babylon. And it's very uh, strange to us maybe that God would use an unrighteous, violent, pagan nation to bring his plans and his justice 
but we'll get to more of that uh, in a, a little bit later. And Habakkuk doesn't understand. He says, God, you're too holy. You are, you are so above, far above everything else. You're so holy. You're so good. You can't even look at evil, and you're going to use these people? And God says, yeah. And so Habakkuk ultimately just says, okay, then I'm going to sit on my watchtower. I'm going to wait, and I'm going to see what you're going to do. And then God tells him, if I told you what I was going to do, you wouldn't believe it. And he tells him, judgment is still coming, but the righteous live by faith. And he tells them in chapter 2, with the woes against Babylon, that Babylon will reap what it has sowed over the nation. And so now we're talking about the righteous visitation of Habakkuk chapter 3. And what ha what's happening here in Habakkuk chapter 3 is that we get a picture of what it looks like when God comes in judgment and essentially chases the wicked out of their land. Right? Uh, I, I was reminded, uh, it's Christmas time, I was reminded of, a, of an incident in my childhood around Christmas time. See, me and my friend Zeb, we were bored one night, and none of our friends were, none of our other friends could come out. And you know, it's, it's probably like 7, 8 o'clock, but it's really, it's dark outside because it's Christmas time. And um, we decided that we just want to cause a little bit of havoc around the neighborhood. So uh, we go around the block, like kind of the backside of where my house was, and we go to my friend Luke's house. And we have uh, this, this plan that we're just going to get Luke and his parents angry at us. So we go and we bang on his door and then we run away, right? If you're a kid, you might have done that growing up. Um, if you didn't, you've, you don't know what a real adrenaline rush feels like. And so we run and we hide to see because we want to see their reaction and they don't come out. So I don't, they, they were home. So, well, we don't actually know if they came out, but we went around the corner to hide to see if they were going to chase us, and they weren't. So we were sitting on, the, uh, on this stoop, uh, this kind of raised area um, of bricks, and we were uh, the next-door neighbor, this kid named Saul and his parents, and we were just sitting there, and we were kind of bored because, like, now nobody's even reacting to our pranks. Nothing's going on. And so we're sitting there, innocent Innocent to these people, right? Not innocent to Luke's family, but innocent to Saul's family. We're sitting there innocent, just talking, figuring out what we're going to do next. And all of a sudden, his parents come running out of their house, yelling at us. And we don't know what's happened. And we said, oh, no. Fear, adrenaline. We just get up and we start running. Right, we start, we just start running, and we're running around the corner to our house, and my house is like six houses down, and so we're just, and we, you know, if we had done something, we wouldn't have ran to my house, but we ran to my house, and we got inside, and they came, and they knocked on my door, and my dad answered, and they started yelling at my dad about what me and Zeb had done, but we didn't do anything. See, they had accused us of taking Christmas bulb lights off of their <laughs> Christmas lights. Now, um, this doesn't happen now, but uh, back then, if you took one bulb out or two bulbs out, the whole thing went down. Now, I can understand why they thought it was us, because we did that to other houses, okay? Guilty as charged, but we did not do it against um, Saul's house that night or ever. We didn't. And so they're yelling, and I'm trying to convince my parents we didn't do it. We were just sitting there. We didn't do anything. We went and knocked on Luke's door. This was, and what do you think my parents thought? They didn't believe me, right? Um, 
And, and so here, here's, what, here's what was essentially happening. I was paying for past sins in that moment. <laughs> That's what I think it was. Right? Like we had done it to this, the house, the houses next door. We would just pull them off and then run, and it was great, right? For us, I didn't realize that you had to pay for Christmas lights when I was a sixth grader, right? And so I was paying for my past sins, even though I didn't do anything in that moment. I didn't do anything wrong in that moment. And this is a little bit how I think that Babylon would feel, right? Because God is using Babylon. It's clear that God is using Babylon for his purposes. And they're still getting punished for it, even though they're still under the, the operation of Yahweh. And so they're going to come, and like us sitting on the corner, when God comes in, they're going to run in fear. They're going to leave. They, they're not going to know what to do with themselves. Destruction is going to come swiftly, and they will pay for their sins. And, and a lot of times, and if you if we remember back in Habakkuk chapter 2, it wasn't just what they did to Israel. They were paying for their past sins as well, for ways that they had conquered other nations. And so God comes in this righteous visitation for Habakkuk, and Babylon will get what we deserve. And we technically got what we deserve, even though we were innocent in that moment. It's still one of my favorite memories, even though I got grounded. Usually, okay, so things are a little bit different this morning. Usually here, I read the whole text of scripture that I'm going to read, but I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm going to read it later, but we're going to jump in, and I'm going to go a little bit more verse by verse than I normally do. And so you're probably going to want to keep your Bibles out as I go down. So uh, I talked about the prayer of Habakkuk according to the Shaganoth. And in verse 2, Habakkuk makes a plea. And he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. The first thing I want you to notice in this is the change of Habakkuk's tone and his sense of reverence. In chapter 1, he just comes in. He comes out, guns firing. God, why are you doing this? Why? You have to answer me. You have to, you have to tell me what's going on. And, and he, he boldly approaches the way that we can boldly approach the throne of grace. And yet, when God meets him in that place, he comes back to his rightful place of reverence. And trust in God. His tone, it's changed. He's like, okay, God, I've heard the report of you. I've heard what you've said. I've heard what you've done. Oh, Lord. And I fear. So in the beginning, he's just like, God, this, God, this, God, God. And now he's like, okay, <laughs> I know who I'm dealing with again. I might have just forgotten for a second. Thank you for not striking me dead in that moment. But I hear of you. And I fear it. Revive your nation. Revive your people. Because at this point, he's no longer questioning God's wrath, right? He's been questioning God's wrath. But now he's pleading for mercy. Right before it was, God, don't use Babylon. God, don't bring your wrath this way. God, don't do it like this. And now it's like, okay, you have to do it like this. I get it. I understand it. But in your wrath, which is part of the outworking of who you are, don't forget the merciful part of your character. 
Don't forget that there are deep wells of mercy within you. He's just pleading for it in the moment of it. It's like he's saying, I know what you have to do. See, but he doesn't get to that point until God explains it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase a Tim Keller quote here. Tim Keller says something essentially that goes, that says that uh, you would do everything that God would do, that God has done, if you knew everything that God knows. That if you understood everything that God understands, and you wouldn't do a single thing differently than him, because he is all-powerful, all-knowing, he is that good. And so after Habakkuk gets the explanation of what's going to happen and why it's going to happen, then he, then he stops questioning. He says, okay, go ahead, bring your wrath. We deserve it. But in the middle of it, please, mercy. In the middle of it, please hold your people tight. See, the, the struggle that we have is that sometimes we have to live without those answers. Right? I, I think, uh, now, now, as I say that, let me say this. I think that God wants to answer us more often than, than we think. We just don't know to ask or listen about what he's doing. But there are times where we will not hear the answer or the explanation. And the, 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 the thing that God is trying to show us is, is your faith strong enough to walk through me when you walk with me through this when you don't have the answers? When you don't have it all locked down, when you don't have it, your plan all set up, when all of this isn't happening according to the way that you would do things, are you still going to stay with me? Because you will not always get all the answers. Now, I think you can have more answers than you have presently if you just ask and talk and listen to his voice. But at this point, Habakkuk has all the answers. And he says that he has heard the report of him, and he gives part of that report as Yahweh arrives on the scene. It says, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Look, I've, I've said this before, and I'll keep saying it. We have to read uh, the Bible as it's not to us, it's for us. This was written to the, the, the people of Judah. And so when they read this, it's much different than when we read it. We just think, oh, God's coming from these different places. But when a, a, a person in Judah would read this, what they are saying is that they are uh, getting their memories jogged about things that have done. These two places, they're meant to evoke remembrance in the Exodus crossing on the dry land over and the water rushes back and takes out Pharaoh's chariots and army and they cross and they are free from their slavery. And it's also to remember the Sinai event where Moses goes to the top of Mount Sinai and the clouds and the lightning and the thunder and the visitation of God and he gets the law and the Ten Commandments. Right? And so when they read these verses, what they, would, what they would think about is the fact that God has delivered his people before and he's going to do it again. So he's saying, look, yes, Babylon's going to come. Yes, Babylon's going to destroy and Babylon's going to take you away from your land. But don't worry, this has happened before and I got you out of it then and I'm a faithful God so I'm going to get you out of it now. 
God's delivered his people before, and he's going to do it again. And then the, the Sinai event, it, it, it evokes this memory that God is the God of the covenant, right? He has made a covenant with them that they are going to be blessed throughout the nations to bring forth the Messiah, and he's not going to break his covenant. He can't break his covenant. It's not in his character to break his covenant. And he's reminding them over and over again, I am faithful, I am faithful, I am faithful. Because what we tend to do is we tend to put our feelings and our emotions on God. And we do this with our measure of faithfulness as well. We see our lives and we think about how unfaithful we are and how we're tossed to and fro. And we expect God to be the same way. To the point where sometimes it surprises us when God is actually faithful to what he said. I don't know if you've ever been in that, that situation where you know what the Bible says, you know what it says about you and your life and what God can do with you, through you, and for you. And then when it actually happens, you're like, oh, wow, you, you were really telling the truth as if God could lie, right? And, and, and here's the thing. We have the privilege of Jesus. Right? They're being written to and they're, uh, they're being, their memories are being jogged to Sinai. And it's being jogged to the exodus and fleeing from Egypt. And we get the privilege of having our memories jogged back to the faithfulness of Jesus. That, that here as Yahweh is arriving, as we're going to see in the next verses, as Yahweh is arriving... It's, it's a picture of Jesus coming in the incarnation. Right? Let, let's see. This is what it's like when Yahweh comes in verse 4. Uh, 3 and 4. In his splendor covered the heavens. And the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand. And there he veiled his power. So as, as Habakkuk gets this picture of Yahweh coming... The splendor covers the heavens, plural, right? So every spiritual realm, first, second, third heaven, some people think there's seven, some people think there's more, all of the heavens, right? This isn't talking about our physical heavens. This is talking about the heavenly realms. God's splendor covers all of that, and it also covers the earth as well. And so remember in Habakkuk chapter 2 that the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. And so now God is coming and his splendor and his power and his praise, it covers every part of all created existence. From everything we cannot see, above us and below us, to everything that we can see, the earth Full of it. And it says his brightness is like light. Rays flash from his hand. And look at this. Even as he comes to rescue his people, he cannot show his full power and glory. He still has to veil his power. The little bit that he shows is, is him covering everything. He's, he's bright. Like the light, rays are coming from his hands. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that looks like, but it sounds pretty awesome, right? 
bright. These powerful things are coming out of him. And that's still not all of him. When Moses asks God, I want to see your glory. I want to see you. He says, you can't. But I'll walk by and you can, you can look at my back as I go. Jesus, at his transfiguration, he begins, to, he begins to reveal part of his deity and who he is and all of his glory. And what does he start to do? He starts to glow, right? And as he glows, the people that have been around him for years and have followed him and have learned from him, they get dumbstruck. It says that Peter just starts talking and he doesn't know what he's saying, but he's just talking. Even as he comes to rescue his people, he cannot show his full power and his full glory. It is so immense. It is so uh, otherworldly from us. He, he is so different, so distinct, so powerful that we cannot look at it and yet, and yet, Jesus comes to us. Not full of light with the earth full of his praise and rays flashing from his hand. But as a little baby, born in the dirt, he strips away all of those divine privileges and he's here with us for that time of his life. Think about, think about the juxtaposition here, the, the magic, splendor, glory of God that we cannot look at to a little, feeble, crying baby. I hear you, Andrew. Right? Our youngest among us, right? That's how he comes. And then, and then, when it's time, and all of his enemies have been put under his feet, he's going to come back in that big splendor, that big glory, with who knows what's going to be shooting out of where, but I'm going to look for it. This is how Yahweh comes. And as he arrives, we get into a very, Interesting verse. Verse 5, before him went pestilence and plague followed, followed at his heels. Pestilence and plague are the word deber and the word resef in the Hebrew. And deber and resef may simply be personifications of natural phenomenon. What does that mean? Um, I've learned that if anybody has lived in North, if you're not a dirty transplant to North Carolina like I am, and you've lived in North Carolina your whole life, all, everybody has a story about Hugo. And what happened, right? This was like in the 90s. I was 13. Wait, 89? I thought it was 90. Okay, 89. See, everybody's correcting me. Everybody has a story about Hugo. Right? I was nine years old. Right? Some of you are my age when it happened. I'm not saying anything. 
but everybody has. But all you have to do is say Hugo. You don't even have to say Hurricane Hugo. You talk to somebody, yeah, where were you, Hugo? What, Hugo what? Huh? What was that? I don't know. What happened? Right? Everybody has a story, right? Because we give them names, and so they're personified, right? And so when all these other hurricanes come, they, they have their names and um, these different things. So they're personified, and so it could just be that Deber and Recep are just names for plague and pestilence. But what actually is probably happening here is that they're demonic entities. You see, let me explain. Deber is paired with Recep here and Keteb in Scripture. So in Psalm 91, you know, if I, you know, we, if, if I prayed for you during the COVID time, right, you know that I would rebuke Keteb and people were healed. So Deber is, is, is paired with these other deities, right? And we read it, and remember, we have to read it like they would read it. We read it, and we just think, oh, he's just talking about pestilence and plague. But he's not. These are the names of deities that people worship. Recef was a deity worshipped by Canaanites and Phoenicians. There was a temple to Recef that they uncovered and found. And there was worship to these entities, right? And, and again, we... Uh, uh, the Western world has a tendency, well, they, think they, they weren't really worshiping a deity because that can't really happen. These, if you've been here long enough, you know that it can happen. It did happen and still does happen today. And so Recep was a, a deity that was actually worshipped, and the people that worshipped him worshipped him because he was a plague god. He brought plagues, and they worshipped him, so plagues would not come. And so we get this picture, and this is a little uncomfortable because it's much like God using Babylon. There are demonic entities traveling in the wake of Yahweh as he comes. And I think what's happening here is that God is doing what he does in Romans 1 where he says, okay, you want your life to be this way? Fine, I'm giving you up to your passions. I'm giving it up to you. And he's saying, fine, Judah, you have, uh, you have uh, mocked worship. You have defiled the temple. You've done it long enough. Now you're going to get what is coming to you. I'm taking away my divine protection, and now you will be attacked. Well, where else is that in Scripture? Parable of the unforgiving servant. The servant is forgiven. He won't forgive. So God hands him over in anger to torturers. And so we get this sense that, okay, first of all, first of all, they are at the feet of Yahweh. They are not beside him. There is no God beside you, right? There is nothing that they can do without God giving them the authority to do it. And it seems like he's going to do that against Babylon, against these pe- the, the, the nation that's going to enslave Israel. They will come and they will get wrecked by the very demons that they worship. And so they are coming with Yahweh and Yahweh and, and Yahweh's going to unleash them and say, you can do what you want here. I am giving you permission. They have to have permission. And as he comes and as he does this, it says he stands in verse 6 and he measures the earth. He looked and he shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. 
his were the everlasting ways. There's so much symbolism in the Old Testament. You have to understand what's being said here. Mountains and hills are normally representative of nations and earthly powers. These are nations that rise up, right? In, uh, in, uh, in Revelation, the, there's the seven hills, right? And that represents Rome. And it's, they're represented by hills. Nations are represented by mountains. And so God is coming and he is seeing these nations that everybody thinks are going to last forever. He sees the nations like Babylon. He sees the nations like uh, Assyria. He sees the nations coming up like Greek and Rome. And when his presence, he shakes them and they are scattered. His ways are the ones that are everlasting. His kingdom is the kingdom that will never fail. His kingdom is the one that will last forever. His are the everlasting ways. All of these other ones sink low and get scattered. And mountains being scattered and earthquakes are symbolic of nations being judged. You'll see this all the time. You'll see it in Isaiah. You'll see it in Jeremiah that there's earthquakes and mountains are crumbling. They're in fear and dread of the Lord. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Jesus' words. And I, I, don't have a, I don't have an answer to what I'm about to tell you, but it's just something that I've been thinking about. Does this play into when Jesus tells his disciples, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be moved and it will be cast into the sea? Is Jesus saying that there is no nation that can stand against the faithfulness of the church? Like no matter what comes, no matter what happens, that, that the, the mustard seed that grows, right, the, 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 other, uh, the mustard seed that grows and encompasses and envelops everything and the birds come to reside in its branches, that same mustard seed, mountains move at it. So I don't know if there's a correlation there. I haven't done enough. I, I just thought about it Thursday, so I haven't had time to read about it, but I was, I was just wondering. See, when we, when we read these type of things, we have to understand what's being said. Nations, hills, okay? And he continues in verse 8 through 11, and he starts to talk to creation. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or the indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on the chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Salah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. Creation is writhing. Creation is groaning. Creation is throwing its hands up. Heavenly bodies aren't doing what the heavenly bodies normally do at the presence of Yahweh. Creation reacting to God's presence is a common presence is a common theme in Scripture. <laughs> at some point, Jesus 
uh, when the Pharisees are rebuking uh, his followers on what we call Palm Sunday. They're saying, tell them to stop. They're calling you Messiah. Tell them to stop. And Jesus says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Creation would react to my presence if my people don't react to my presence. Right? Romans chapter 8 tells that all creation is groaning and longing for the sons of God to be revealed. Creation itself reacts to the very presence of God. So we have this picture of God being displayed in every heavenly realm that there is. We have this picture of God and his praise filling all of the earth. And now everything is reacting to his presence. Right? When the presence of God comes, everything reacts. And these heavenly bodies, the sun and the moon, they react. They're reacting to God's presence. It's seen in several New Testament apocalyptic texts and should be read with Old Testament thinking. Heavenly bodies can represent the spiritual realm and its members. Here's what I mean by this. So when you read things in the New Testament about the sun and the moon failing and stars falling, this isn't a physical event. Right? Don't read Matthew chapter 24 and say, well, before God comes, the sun and the moon are going to fall out of the sky. I don't think they will. I can make it, right? But it's this reaction, right? When Satan, rebel, when Satan rebels and fights and causes war at the birth of Jesus, what does his tail sweep down? Stars. This is spiritual reactions to the presence of God. And then he comes in verse 12. He marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. In Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 2, he was asking God why he will not come to his people. And now Habakkuk sees that his fears were unfounded from the beginning. There's so much stuff, so much of the future that we're afraid of. And we're asking God, why won't you do this? Why won't you do this? And all we need to do is sit and wait and we'll see that he might just do that, that you're asking him to do. Habakkuk said, God, why don't you come? Come, judge, come in wrath, come in your anger. And now he has this picture of God marching through in fury, anger. Here's what you have to understand. That God wants his plans and activity on earth more than we want his plans and activity on earth. As much as we pray for God's revival, for him to sweep up our nation, for him to sweep up the world, for him to be revealed and displayed and his glory to be shown, as much as we want that, God wants it far more than we do. And so we sit here and we continue to ask and we continue to pursue these things because God wants to do it. I don't have easy answers about why he doesn't always do it when we ask. But I do know that he wants to do it. The Bible is clear. 
that he wants the knowledge of the glory of God to fill the earth as the earth, uh, fill the waters as the earth, uh, fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. He makes it very clear that we're to be the mustard seed, that we're to be the leaven, that we're a city on a hill, the light shining, the salt of the earth. He makes all of these things clear that he wants his enemies to become his footstool far more than we could ever want it. And so what we need to do is be like Habakkuk and say, okay, God, I know you want it. When is it going to come? And we can be like Habakkuk in chapter 1 and keep pleading and keep begging, God, will you come? God, will you come? It's like Simeon in, in the first part of Matthew where he cannot die. He will live until the Messiah comes. And if you read what the Jewish people taught about Simeon, you might be surprised to see what they thought. They think he's hundreds of years old. And he's there and he's like, okay, I know the promise is coming, but would you come sooner? I've seen my kids die. I've seen my grandkids die. Can you come just a little bit sooner? God wants to move. God wanted to send the Messiah far more than Simeon wanted the Messiah. And in verse 13, he says, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Babylon's going to come get you, Habakkuk, but I'm going to get them. Your enemies are lining up for you, but God's going to take care of them. They're going to come and they're going to take you away, but they will face my judgment, and it's not, a, it's not a judgment that is nice or pretty, their heads being crushed and bodies being cut open from thigh to neck. This is the warrior God. And so remember, there is a change of tone to one of reverence. God has delivered before and he will deliver again. He has even had to veil his power and glory. The earth is reacting and nations are crumbling. This, this is all significant of the power of God's righteous visitation. And now I'm going to read. 1 through 15. Don't read along with me. Put your Bibles down. You can close your eyes if you want. But with these things in mind, just sit and listen to what happens when God arrives on the scene. The prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to the Shigeonah. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. 
His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Selah. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. The eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His ways were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kishon in affliction. Curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Salah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on the deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place as the light of your arrows, at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses and the surging of mighty waters. And this is the word of the Lord. And Habakkuk sees this and writes it, and here's how he reacts. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, and my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. I'll wait for your justice. I'll wait for your righteousness. So where he starts out questioning, the questioning leads way to humble submission as the presence of God even affects Habakkuk's physical body. Most Western evangelical churches get very uncomfortable when the presence of God affects somebody's body. They do. Um, a while back, I was at a gathering, and, uh, and somebody gave uh, a tongue, and they asked if anybody had an interpretation, and I had the interpretation. I went up, and I gave the interpretation. But after the interpretation, I've given interpretations before, but this time after the interpretation, I could not stop shaking. I, can't, I don't know why, but uh, shaking's kind of a, a thing uh, that, that happens to me at times, but this time I could not stop shaking. I was trembling, the presence, and I don't know what was different that time. I couldn't tell you, but I, was, I could not stop shaking. I was bouncing out of my seat practically 
as my body trembled under. And, and I wouldn't even say that I really felt the presence of God leading up to it or going into it. Or I wasn't especially expressive during worship, but God just hit me right there. And I could not stop trembling. And if I, 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 thankfully, I was in a place where that, that was a little strange, but it wasn't super strange, right? Uh, it, uh, okay, uh, so we were there, and I was just trembling and shaking. And somebody just came and laid hands on me, and I crumpled to the floor out of my seat. We can't be uncomfortable when God wants to affect our physical bodies. It happens all the time in Scripture. He causes his people to dance. The presence of the Lord fills the temple, and the priests are on their backs, and they can't move, and they can't get up, and they cannot minister before the Lord anymore. A woman touches Jesus, and Jesus feels something in his body leave him as she is healed. When Jesus is being arrested for a second, he reveals who he is. He says, I am he. And everybody at the revelation of who Jesus really is falls back on the floor down. People tremble in scripture. People fall on their face, bowing in scripture, right? If we're not comfortable with God affecting physical bodies, then we won't be comfortable with the presence of God. There's a story from the Great Awakening where I think it's Wesley. Wesley's been preaching and people are falling over in his services. And George Whitfield goes up to him and he says, Wesley, you have to stop allowing people to fall over in your services. It's distracting. It's disruptive. You can't allow it. And John says, why don't you come and preach one time? And so George Whitfield starts to preach. And as he starts to preach, somebody just hits the floor as he's preaching. And he's like, I didn't do that. This is all throughout history of God's presence falling on his people. Read the book of Acts. Saul falls to the ground. Others speak in tongues. Others start prophesying that the presence of God changes our physical realities. The presence of God is a reality-changing event. It changes realities in the heavenly places like we saw, and it changes our realities here. You can, like, you can feel. It's okay. If you need permission, I'm giving you permission. It's okay to feel the presence of God. It's okay to want to feel it. It's okay to ask to feel it. Apparently, Habakkuk's just shaking all over. He feels it in his bones. And then he says some of the most beautiful verses in scripture. I love it. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, 
I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's, and he makes me to tread on my high places. This is the choir master with stringed instrument. says, God, I know, I know that it might get difficult. All of our orchards of figs and olives, these things that we live on, these things that we need, they might just fall flat. God, my crops may not grow, and my, I might not have any animals in any of my stalls. Things might get difficult. Things might be a struggle. Yet, yet, yet I will rejoice in you because you are the God of my salvation. He says, God, I will rejoice in the waiting. If you're not willing to rejoice in the waiting, then you'll never feel the full freedom of not waiting anymore of having the visitation. God, I will rejoice in the waiting. I will take joy in what you've done. You are my strength. (laughs) Forgive me for how strange this sounds, but where are your figs not blossoming? Where are your stalls empty? You see, what rejoicing in the Lord does when our figs aren't blossoming, when our olives aren't growing, when, when, all this stuff, when all this bad stuff is happening, what rejoicing does is it takes our mind and our emotions off of ourselves and points us to Jesus. Are you struggling? Rejoice. Get your mind off yourself. Put your focus back on God. The heavenly things, not the things of this world. Set your mind on things above, not things that are below. The things that below are transitory, but the things that are from above are eternal. And God is is preparing us as we rejoice. God is preparing us as we wait. But will you rejoice in it? Stand with me, please. For centuries, for centuries, The people of Israel waited. They knew a Messiah was going to come. They knew that they were promised some certain things. But they waited and they waited. And when he finally arrived, 
most of them missed it. They yelled out, give us Barabbas. The blood of him be on our heads and the heads of our children. They missed it. When we're in that season of waiting, we have to stay connected and tethered through God, to God through our spiritual disciplines so that we don't miss it. So that it doesn't come and we're off to the side thinking about how bad we have everything and we're just looking at our navels the whole time. We put our focus on him. And this is, this is what the Advent season is all about. It's us putting our focus on the coming Messiah. And so the band's gonna come up and our only reflection prompt is to worship in line with Habakkuk's words. And I'll read those one more time. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. And though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet, 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 yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's, and he makes me to tread on my high places. The choir master with stringed instruments. Father, meet with us here. Show us the reality of who you are. God, and for those of us in here this morning that are struggling in the waiting, that are hurting in the, the in-between time, cause our spirits to rejoice in the God of our salvation. In Jesus' name. Worthy you are, worthy you are, worthy you will be forever, Yahweh. Worthy you were, worthy you are, worthy you will be forever, Yahweh. Worthy you were, worthy you are. Worthy.
that the stalls are empty. Lord, we're in that barren place. You are still Yahweh. You are still God. Lord, we just bear ourselves before you right now as we worship. We bring you a sacrifice of praise. For you alone are worthy. All of my life, in every season, you are still God. I have a reason to sing. I have a reason to worship in the waiting, in the good times, and all of my life. In every season, you are still God. I have a reason to sing. Yes, we do. I have a reason to worship. All of my life. All of my life. In every season, you are still God. To sing, I have a reason to worship. Hallelujah, God. We have every reason to worship. Our circumstances do not dictate who you are. You are outside of our circumstances. Oh, you are God. Let's sing. Let's do it. This morning we're just following the Holy Spirit. Oh! 
I'm walking through it right now. The first thing that the enemy will attack is your faith. If he can get you to question God and question God's character and question God's goodness, oh, then he's got you in a, in a really, really bad place. Oh, Lord, let our faith be strong. Let faith arise. In spite of what I see, Lord, I believe. And help my unbelief, I choose to trust you. No matter what I see, let faith arise. Let faith arise. For my champion's not dead, he
come, O come, Emmanuel. Ransom the captives. Set us free, Lord. As in you, we rejoice. We rejoice, we rejoice. You are a God so faithful. You are a God so true. You are a God so powerful that when the fig trees don't blossom, fields of olives do not produce, when our crops do not grow, that we can still rejoice because we can have faith that you are faithful. That even when we are faithless, you are faithful. It is in your nature to be faithful. And so, Father, Show us your faithfulness. God, I pray that as people leave here and they reflect and they think, okay, God, why is this going on in my life? God, why is this happening? As they ask you those questions, Lord, I pray. Speak to them. Give them the answers that they're longing for. Father, open up the spiritual ears of every person that passes out of the doors of Faith Church this morning. Open them up so that when we ask, we can hear your answer. You're a God who is near to the brokenhearted and a weak flame you will not stamp out. We are your children. We are your sheep who know your voice and the voice of another we will not follow. God, let us hear your voice as we leave. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple things before you go. Uh, We had our ministry team up here. Lloyd's part of our ministry team this morning. And a lot of times our ministry team prays for things like, God, what do you want me to pray for this morning? Lloyd. Uh, He didn't know what this word meant uh, when he got it, which is always a a pretty good sign that it's from God. Um, Neuropathy. Do you even know that that's how it was pronounced? Or were you saying neuropathy? It's neuropathy. (laughs) If you have neuropathy and you'd like Lloyd to pray for you, come see Lloyd. And I'm going to ask for something selfishly here. I've had a pain in my body for about six weeks, and it hasn't really gotten better. And I would like some prayer for it. But here's the thing. If I'm going to let you pray for me, I need you to tell me where the pain in my body is. Okay? I would love, so ask. Like, if you want to pray for me, I, I'm, I'm just going to be like Nebuchadnezzar here for a second. Not in like a bad way, but in a good way. Right? And then if nobody comes up, then I'll just ask somebody and I'll tell them, hey, here's where the pain is. Will you pray for it? But you have to be specific too. So it's not my knees. So if you said, hey, it's your knees, you have to tell me if it's my right or my left. Okay? I mean, I want you to practice this stuff. I know people have done it before. I know that there have been people who have been very precise when they've asked God for prayers like this. And so now I want to be practiced on instead of me uh, practicing on you guys, all right? All right. Not a lot of excitement there. That's okay. God, we thank you. You are faithful. Be with us as we go. Amen. Amen. Give me some men up here.